0: I wish we were in a different place, but I think the companies that are really committed to DEI are doing it. There's a lot of people that are throwing things out there and they can go to their board or they can feel good at night that, Hey, we checked that box or we're doing that. Um, But you also remember right after George Floyd, DEI, I think it was the hottest career. I mean, every job listing and look now it's not there.
1: Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. Joining me today for our monthly roundup of HR news is my friend, Terry Swain. Terry is the founder and chief truth seeker at Decipher, an HR consulting firm specializing in equal employment opportunity investigations, employee relations, and interim HR leadership. Terry has 25 years' experience as an HR consultant, and prior to that, she was a corporate HR leader and an investigator for the EEOC. But her most notable accomplishment is that she was my second guest on this podcast way back in 2021. Welcome back to Good Morning HR Terry. Thank you. So this is where we talk about news from from the month of May. And this episode is dropping on May 25th, which is the third anniversary of George Floyd's murder, which sparked our whole COVID summer of Black Lives Matter protests around the country. And in the wake of all that, a lot of corporations began appointing DEI leaders to ostensibly embrace diversity and ensure that equity, inclusion, and belonging were available to all of their employees. So you've spent much of your career focused on EEO issues. How have things changed from your experience in the last three years?
0: Well, I'd like to say that a lot, but I'm going to say not much. I think that like a lot of things, there's been reaction. A lot of corporations have been reactive. Board of directors, senior leaders, like we have to go get some DEI. We've got to do some training. We got to throw some resources at this. It's very high, high um, visibility. But anybody who's been in this for a long time, like I have, knows that's it is a super long game. Game. I mean, it is holistic. People who have done it well, I look at the AT&Ts. Pepsi, Frito, they started way long time ago and they've been chipping away, 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 not always getting everything right, but looking at it as a long-term strategy. So I think a lot of people went in for the short term and you see the flops. Um, and I think employee complaints are on the rise. The one thing I can think that, that's been um, positive is that, I think there's more sensitivity, perhaps. But I've also seen a lot of people just really expressing things outwardly, you know, negatively re- relative to race, sexual orientation that I haven't heard people say before either. So it's kind of this mixed bag. How about you? What's your been your experience or observation?
1: Well, I think most of what we saw... Uh, starting in summer 2020 from the corporate side was performative. Okay. We, you know, we got to do something and I think, and this is not a necessarily going to be popular, but screw it. It's my podcast is that a, a bunch of maybe well-meaning people, but I think a lot of them or a handful of them, some of them, I don't know, are hucksters uh, out there putting themselves out as DEI consultants and, you know, playing on this court, this, this corporate desire to, you know, to do something and to be seen as doing something. And so I think a lot of what I've seen in, in these DEI programs that have sprung up over the last few years again it's performative but it's it's these they're just reintroducing a whole different set of broad generalizations that we would call stereotypes and so they t- they talk about white people they talk about black people's experiences they talk about these different ex- you know gay people's experiences as though they're monolithic and it just it takes us right back to stereotypes because you know nobody's experiences are the same and Um, and when we start talking about people in these broad categories, and we also too often these things, these conversations turn into the oppressor and the oppressed or the villain and the victimized. I don't think, you know, I think the studies out there in the last few years show that you don't change hearts and minds through reeducation or through these kind of training programs where you, you make people realize their privilege. Yeah. We've got, you know, different people have different kinds of privilege. We've got different backgrounds. Uh, there, and, and no one phenotypic trait trait that you happen to have is going to define who you are and what your privilege was and what your experiences were. And I think that's, we've had too much of that. If we really want to, if, and I think this is what you're talking about, AT&T, Frito-Lay, some of the, the big guys who've been working on it for a long time. If you really want to mitigate, um, bias in the workplace, it starts with systems, we're not going to eliminate people's biases. We all have biases. They're hard learned. They're hardwired in our systems by the time, you know, we become adults. And maybe we can help people recognize them. But when you hold, put a gun to somebody's head and make them sit in a conference, conference room all day and somebody tells you what your biases are, and if you deny those biases, there's something wrong with you, that doesn't, that doesn't help morale,
0: And honestly, training is the last thing you should always do if you're looking at a DEI strategy. Because if you look at the Fritos, Pepsis, AT&T, just a few that I'm familiar with, they start with the business case. Hey, we want market share, right? If we want market share, we have to have representation. We have to have representation in in the images we show on tv we have to have representation within our organization we have to have representation in our supplier diversity so we take this holistic look and we start putting those systems and processes in place that become diverse that springboard out off of you know maybe our affirmative action plan or springboard off of some of those things and then when we have all the systems in place we start chipping away at it because you're right i mean I have found myself, actually, in the last few years, coming to terms with some things that deeply held things that I had, just from conversations that have, you know, come out of these movements. But if you sat me down in a corporate environment and told me, th- or you know, this is how it is, or this is what you're experiencing, whatever, I, I probably wasn't going to take it as much as when I was open to receiving and hearing and And I also want to go back to your point about the Hucksters. Um, You know, there's so many DEI consultants. There's so many people out there that claim to be it. But on the flip side of that, I know a lot of super talented DEI people, super talented, that are up against organizations not listening to them about this long game. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, but really, I just want some training right now because my board, blah, 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 blah. And then what happens is even if they if they suggest some training, they're editing it, right? So, yeah, I mean, I just – I wish we were in a different place, but I, I don't think – I think the companies that are really committed to DEI are doing it. There's a lot of people that are throwing things out there, and they can go to their board or they can feel good at night that, hey, we checked that box or we're doing that. Um, but you also remember right after George Floyd – DEI, I think it was the hottest career. I mean, every job listing. And look now, it's not there.
1: Yeah. And now they're getting, you know, they're as, especially in the tech world, as as we do layoffs, those are the first positions getting cut. And I think it's because, well, first of all, some of those, you know, some companies just weren't really dedicated to it. They just needed, you know, they needed to throw some money at something to, you know, to, to be performative, which is dumb. But beyond that, I don't think they were seeing an ROI on it and, and especially startups and venture capital backed firms are very short term focused financially and not not willing to make that investment. But, you know, I did, uh, I've got a webinar that I recorded last fall uh, and that I've done several times at conferences. It's one of my most popular ones now, and it's on mitigating bias in the selection process. And it's, it's all about systems, right? Okay. You know what's our process for defining what a job description contains, and are these really relevant to the position or are these preferences? Uh, you know, anytime I see nice to have, it's a red flag for me when I'm looking at somebody's job descriptions. You know, how are we writing our job postings so that we aren't, you know, inadvertently or intentionally signaling to some group that this isn't the right job for you? Where are we posting those? Where are we advertising our jobs? what you know what's our you know if you want to do some you want to really improve DEI in your organization, train your managers on how to do good interviews. And you know, because they're they're going in shooting from the hip way too often. And so they they walk away without any solid information about this person's competency. They just know I like this person or not. And and so all of those things introduce bias. And and then once they're employees you know, let's train a manager at how to actually lead people and and have conversations and and recognize what's job related and what's just well that's unusual in our organization, but it's not a thing that I'm going to have to worry about. Uh, those kind of things and those are all syst- system issues, and I don't think most of those are put in place to bring about inequality in the organization or to make people feel excluded. It's just. The way they are, and if we don't take systemic approaches to fixing them, they're going to stay there.
0: Yeah, and even a step back from that, in your leadership, in your leadership, top leadership, understanding your own biases. Yeah, I mean that's that's like to me is job one. Um, I remember working in my corporate life, and we we were in DEI back in the '90s, and we had a consultant, top consultant in the country, come in, do focus groups. And the biggest thing that came out of that was work-life balance. And I remember our senior leader saying, we're not doing work-life balance. <laughs> By the way, that was the railroad. It runs yeah. 365, 24 seven, and it wasn't the culture. And they weren't willing, even though that's what they were hearing, they weren't willing to overcome that bias that we can't reshape the workplace at that point in time for work-life balance. You know, even if the, it meant like we want to get more women into our organization, and this is the way you're going to do it, they weren't willing. That it was a bias that they couldn't overcome. So there was no reason for us to plow ahead with with everything. So I think even sometimes just understanding that's your bias, like what's and, and it wasn't going to work in our organization if we were going to try and right. uh, do all these things to promote women, but we weren't going to give them work life balance. It didn't matter if we recruited them. It didn't really matter if we promoted them. It didn't matter if we paid them. We stole them from somebody else. It wasn't going to work.
1: And 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 again, that bias to really recognize that takes somebody with a willingness to self-examine and and to be contemplative about their own, you know, their own world. Because the bottom line is, I think we could just start our DEI training with just the affirmation that you know what. We're all assholes. We all have preferences. That, <laughs> I'm not. Oh, you're not. Of course not. But we all have preferences that that don't serve us well or don't serve the right. organization well. And let's just let's just admit that. And we all do. It's not just because you're a, right. a, an over forty white male that you've got. I mean, we all do. And we right. let those things. We've got those experiences in our past. And maybe somebody from this group treated me horribly at some point, or I had a horrible experience with somebody in this group, or I really had a great experience with somebody in this group. So what, that this next individual you're dealing with is not that person. And just because they have the same cultural background or racial background or whatever, education, whatever, doesn't mean that this person's, as soon as we realize that, and and we don't want to be judged by the other a-holes. We just want to be judged on our own a-holeness. You know, I think that's what we've got to do as exec- you know, as leaders is recognize that, talk about that, but we don't need to self-flagellate. We're just humans. And that's just being a person. And so and we saw this uh, this past week Uber's diversity chief got put on 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 suspension or on leave uh, because in Uber's ongoing training about diversity. She did a session, a couple of sessions diving into the spectrum of the American white woman's experience and basically saying calling white women Karen was derogatory. Okay, I can't argue with that. Uh, I, I've never heard anybody say, call somebody Karen in a positive light, right? And so, mm-hmm. but then some group of employees on Slack at Uber started blowing up that this was. Uh, you know they were being lectured on the difficulties experienced by a white women, and and uh, that it was dismissive of these other groups' concerns. And so we're getting back into this: who's the most oppressed, and all of this. And too often, I think companies, whether it's Twitter or your own internal Slack, you're reply, you're you're responding as an organization to a small percentage of vocal people. And, and I think that's a giant mistake was, I mean, and here's the other thing. This woman wasn't what we would normally categorize as a white lady. I mean, she's Asian. She's the, appears. And I, I, I think race is stupid anyway, but she appears to be an Asian <laughs> and, you know, and that's her, her last name appears Asian. So I just think but responding I, to but that. I, is step,
0: I step back from that, even to say, why are we talking about that at Uber? I mean, like why, what's the business reason to be talking about that? Okay. Might you have a customer who's a Karen and you need to know how to deal with that. But this is where I kind of, when when our workplaces, it's one thing to educate people, Mm -hmm. right. And to have conversations, but I just, I'm just wondering like, Why was that necessary as a training?
1: And I think you're right. I totally think you're right. But I would apply it to almost all of the focus on on dumping atypic traits, right? I mean, you know, skin color, race, background, whatever you want to call it. We don't, what we ought to have is a policy that say, hey, we don't talk derogatory, derogatory derogatorily about one another. We're here to work as a team and... And we don't, you know, there are certain behaviors that are unacceptable. And that's the system that we're building. And we, and we treat each other with respect and 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 things. And we don't call people names. That's all we have to say. And then we manage to that. I don't think having, you know, uh, but she's hoisted on her own petard because, I mean, this was her, you know, this was her initiative and this is what she's supposed to be doing for Hooper. But then some folks who, uh, you know, and it, they didn't give us enough in The Wall Street Journal story. didn't uh, information about the demographics of the people who were complaining about it, but clearly they had some other, you know something other they were something other than than white women who could be called Karens that you know they start to throw a fit and, and object to it and then we're putting people on on leave. It just, it's it's ridiculous because you know, I definitely think we need respectful workplaces. We need workplaces where people can show up and, uh, do their job, feel like they are part of the team, that they're valued for their contributions and then go home and do whatever they want to. I mean, you know, and, and, but while you're here, the job is get along with other people and treat other people with respect. I don't, and I think, I don't think, I think this focus on changing hearts and minds, I think, and I've said it before here, but when I was growing up in corporate America in the early nineties, we knew we had people who worked around us who were gay, but we didn't ever talk about it. And then it became more and more open. And then more and more people looked at the person in the cubicle next to them and said, oh, he's a good guy, or I, I like working with her, and she happens to be gay, it's not a big deal. And I think the more we we just bring people into the organizations who are otherwise fully competent, who happen to be different than the, the rest of the demographic, And we don't make a giant deal of it. They just realize, people realize, oh, this and this, you know, it changes how we think about these, you know, whatever our stupid biases are.
0: Right. And I think you made a good point. I have found that the organizations that are most successful in this area base everything on respect, creating a respectful workplace. So if you're basing it on respect, then those comments whether they're about how you dress, how you speak, what your color is, what your, you know, abilities, disabilities, your, if you're pregnant, non-pregnant, you know, whatever. It all takes care of itself. I've always said that. If we can just, and, but really believe it, like really walk the talk. We have a respectful workplace. And occasionally you've got to redefine that, right? You know, because you come up with some bathroom issues or you come up with some some issues that you didn't think about by having, just like you know, um, having mothers who need to nurse. Well, now we need to have a place for that. Until it comes up, you don't think about it. But we we step back and say, what's the respectful thing to do? How are we going to do this? And if you base all that, all this other stuff needs seems to take care of itself. I think.
1: And I, and none of it. That is to say that if we see that, we know that in the market they you know, 20% of our market are, you know, for engineers are some class that we're really underrepresented repre- in our workforce, then we need to look at that primarily because there's an ROI on that, right? There, I mean, we, we need to, we need to bring in the best talent. And if, if, if we see that we're not bringing in, you know, through whatever, you know, demographics you merit measured against, you know, fully competent workforce or, you know, for not for the sake of diversity, but a divorce workforce that represents the talent pool that's out there that we can actually benefit from, then we're hurting the business. And I I think we if we keep going back to the business reason for it, you know, we will look at how we're recruiting and how we're selecting employees and do everything we can to get the most competent then, regardless of whatever those other demographic issues are.
0: Absolutely.
1: And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. I helped a client write their first internet and social media policy before Facebook even existed. You remember MySpace? And for years, I've encouraged employers to be very careful in how they use social media in screening candidates, especially when it comes to exposing hiring decision makers to protected class information or other info that simply isn't related to the job. And, like other screening companies, we've helped our clients by providing social and internet media searches on candidates. But we work with each client to identify their specific concerns, the actual online behaviors that they want us to watch for, and then create a profile that is unique to that client or even unique to that specific job. For instance, Beyond normal concerns about violence, drugs, or illegal activity, a company in the beef industry may have specific concerns about applicants who are actively involved in more radical animal welfare organizations. Because it would be literally impossible to effectively search all the social media platforms and the whole internet by hand, we use AI bots to search for keywords and sentiments. And while that's helpful, the process isn't perfect. For instance, a post where a candidate says, I'm killing it at work, might get flagged by the AI as an indication of violence. Because we don't believe we should expect our clients to separate the wheat from the shaft, my team of trained analysts review the context and apparent intent of each and every result returned by the bots. And then we deliver only the information that is relevant to our clients' stated concerns. If you'd like to discuss social media or any other aspect of your background screening process, reach out to us at comparativeinfo.com. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for three quarters of a recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on research credits. Then select episode 97 and enter the keyword HR news. That's H-R-N-E-W-S, no spaces. And now back to my conversation with Terry Swain. The other thing that got my attention for some unknown reason is that uh, a bunch of strippers in Los Angeles uh, <laughs> created a, a joined a union and unionized, and uh, after about a year and a half, uh, they... Uh, Uh, came to an agreement. They, what I thought was interesting, uh, the strippers, they joined of all things, the actors equity association. And so, you know, that sounds, that's about right. Right. Yeah. You know, it's a, they, they're acting like they're, they're glad to see you when you walk in the door. I mean, they're probably the best actresses uh, and actors out there. So the maybe <laughs> maybe yeah uh, okay this is gonna be one Mike's gonna have to carry because Terry's not gonna touch it so
0: <laughs> yeah you know the whole unionization is is just an interesting phenomenon to me um, as we know in our long HR career when people are looking at unionizing it's because there's something systemic within right. the organization um, you know when you see star I think Starbucks is a good example um, just because it used to be. If you went to work for Starbucks, like it was great. You were an entry level and you got college paid for. And somewhere along the lines, Starbucks wasn't so great anymore to work at. I don't I don't know why. I, well I'm sure it's changes in the leadership or culture or whatever it can be. And now unionization is the way to like
1: right. So Well, yeah. And I mean, generally I think the companies that get unions deserve them. Uh, I think when you go back and look retrospectively three to five years later, they haven't really brought about the change they promised employees when, when, uh, you know, when they, when they came in the door and like Starbucks has been an issue because I mean, they were actively salting star, uh, you know, the union was actively, so sal- they were sending people in and I'm sorry, that's, this is what salts do to create discontent and, and, um, and and some of the folks, you know, they're, they're, they've documented how much some of these folks were, you know, were paid over one hundred thousand dollars a year to go in and organize uh, and and start up in some of these Starbucks. But, you know, I don't have any doubt that there's days where it sucks to work at a Starbucks someplace. I mean, you know, that's right. uh, you know, and and generally, you know, the like I said, the the companies that aren't responding aren't paying attention to what their employees' circumstances are, what the work life is they are going to you know they're the ones who are gonna either those employees are going to talk to a plaintiff's lawyer or they're gonna respond to union, union outreach or something else and we need to pay attention now the back to the important part the strippers uh they um they unionize primarily what was their
0: beef well, what was their beef? yeah
1: primarily around safety concerns yeah. and i can imagine i mean you know i don't and i, I definitely don't disparage uh sex work but i mean i think Anytime you're in sex work, there's, there are going to be safety concerns and, and perhaps at this particular, uh, strip club, there was an unusual amount of it and, uh, and they just wanted better working conditions and I can't blame them, you know, for, for wanting that, but here's the quote that, uh, after that, just, I just love, I am looking forward to working with the club owners to rebuild star garden into a thriving, inclusive business with a healthy work environment that serves the community said velvita a strip star garden stripper so her her stage name is velvita i don't even want to know where that name came from i'm guessing <laughs> it's olfactory but i don't know um but but i uh and that's of course the only reason we're really talking about this right now is because her name is velvita but uh i think that's uh she, you know, this is probably something that was scripted for her by the union because it's, uh, it's it, it talks about really unique things, thriving, inclusive business. This is not how people talk about strip clubs uh, with a healthy work environment. But um, if our employees can say they don't feel like they have a thriving, inclusive work environment and a safe work environment, a healthy work environment, then maybe that does tell us we need to look at making some changes before uh, the union or plaintiff's lawyers come talking, knocking on the door.
0: Absolutely.
1: The other big topic uh, continues to be uh, AI. Uh, have you played with it at all?
0: Yes.
1: What are you doing with it's pre- it?
0: It's pretty amazing. Um, job descriptions. Yeah. Job descriptions are great. I mean, because it's a great
1: starting point. It grabs a lot of things. I did it. I uh, I A client who I wasn't doing HR consulting for, but just reached out and said, do you have an uh, up-to-date employee handbook that you might give us as a starting point? And I didn't, uh, because I wrote my last handbook 20 years ago, and I'm never doing it again. But (laughs) I jumped on ChatGPT, uh, and uh, I've gotten pretty good with the prompts. And so prompted it several different ways and came up with a great outline for an employee handbook and double check. There were some things that I I knew on its face were wrong. It it hallucinated that Texas required workers comp. And I challenged it on that and it apologized, which was cool. Uh, (laughs) Very polite. And um, but yeah, so it's, it does that. Or if I get a, you know, if, if I, I see something and I'm, I'm curious about a law someplace or where has this been litigated uh, actually barred. I found that Google's Bard is better than chat GP uh, pointing you towards specific case criminal uh, civil cases around different topics. But we're uh, Inc magazine ran an article on how AI is being used in HR and job descriptions are one of the things, but a lot of them are uh, companies are using chat bots and there are companies you can go out there and they will sell you the software that will read your internal website uh, for your benefits and you can feed it your benefits and whatever else you want to feed it. And then sets up a chat box inside a chat bot inside of your intranet or inside your organization. And your employees can go, you know, ask questions about it. It can be used in recruitment, some, you know, facing the outside world, uh, you know, but it just helps, you know, with those, those frees up HR pros from routine questions. You know, if I, if I, you know, if somebody's picking up the phone right now and calling HR and saying, you know, I need to, to change my beneficiary on my, on my benefits, uh, you know, where do I get that form? And somebody in HR has to go look it up for where that form is and send a chat bot, can just deliver that form to them or just give them, a, you know, the link to it. Um, So I think there's a, a lot of benefit to it, but there's a lot of chatter um, you know, I talk about the evil HR lady, Facebook group quite a bit. Uh, and, uh, there are some folks who are really adamant that no, I'm not going to use it. I don't, it's going to put HR people out of work and I refuse to, use. and I, I'm sorry, you're not going to lose your job to AI. You're going to lose your job to somebody using AI and to, you know, somebody's going to learn to be more efficient, but we do need to be careful, right? Not to put a bunch of company information, you know, if you're using chat GPT or, Google's board, and you start putting in company-specific information or PII or anything like that. You're training. You're you're providing that information to somebody outside your company. So I think we need to pay attention to. to but doesn't this
0: doesn't this remind you of the internet? Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> when the internet came out, and it's the same thing, right? It was new technology. There was a lot of dangers to using it. I mean, can you believe? We used to make people come into a physical place and write out an employment application. Right. And I remember the resistance oh, to yeah. people doing that, that you have to do that, you know, doing their online and then searching through, you know, and there there is, there's there's pluses and minuses always, right? To new ways of doing things. And when we enter in it into it at first. We don't know the dangers, and then we learn the dangers, and then then we go on from there. But I'm also reminded, do you remember one time, Fort Worth HR, somebody did a presentation. I think it was the professor from UTA that was talking about the future of work and how he was talking about the high school kids, the jobs they're going to have have not even been invented yet. And I think about that because I just had a client tell me that the hottest job right now is a prompt engineer. Yeah, they make two hundred eighty thousand dollars a year, and they're hard to find. But they're they're programming all these things. So,
1: but I think that's I. I it's interesting because I had lunch with a young guy who's a lot smarter than me on all this stuff uh, this weekend, and he think and he's doing amazing stuff on AI. And he thinks this whole prompt engineering thing is going to be, it's a flash in the pan because everybody's going to have those skills very soon. It's going to be like, how, you know, how do I use my iPhone? It's going to be that common and people, you know, how to talk to AI as it gets easier and easier and smarter and smarter. Nobody's going to need these prompt engineers. And so I think it's kind of like running out and hiring diversity and inclusion experts. You know, I mean, we're responding to what we see (laughs) as a crisis right now. It's the hot thing at the forefront, but, um, I think it's, uh, it's you know if anything, how do you know somebody somebody who can come along and and this should be somebody let's be honest somebody in HR who's you know paying attention to this stuff and saying okay how do we use AI in our organization so that it doesn't create disparate impact and doesn't create you know doesn't reinforce some of the dumb things that we don't even recognize that are going on in the organization and so and on that topic the EEOC came out with guidance uh, uh, on, on and you know not a guidance a technical advisory or whatever they call it, on employers' uh, use of AI, what was your take on what they said?
0: Well, I think what they're saying is just what's always been regulation, right? If you have a company that comes in and says, hey, we can find candidates for you, and this has been validated, that you just don't take that at face value. Going back to our DEI discussion, systems, processes in place to make sure that the, that the whatever you're using, whatever tool you're using, for how you find people is validated. And the only way you validate it is running adverse impact analyses, which right. you should be doing anyway, no matter what method you use to do it. So I think the EEOC was just trying to be like proactive, reminding everybody, hey, if you're using this, make sure, because it's just like testing. There's all those testing companies that'll come out and they'll tell you, oh, our our test is valid. You know, it it, it it's not going to discriminate, but If you're using it and it is knocking people out at a certain point, then it might not be valid. Right. And I went through an OFCCP compliance review once where we had to go back to that company and say, hey, you said this was valid. This is knocking out African-Americans at a higher rate. And they said, oh, you're not using that as a knockout factor, are you? You should be using that as one piece of information. Right. Hello. Hello. So, and I just because something is validated
1: when they're doing a study across a big group doesn't mean how your organization is implementing right. it. And, and, you know, and so we see it with behavioral assessments all the time. All the assessment companies say, Yeah, we've been validated, but that doesn't mean that my choice of this behavioral set for this job is valid in our organization. Right. Right. So, and that's the problem. And it
0: it's the same thing with this tool. It's like anything else. You've got to. You've got to be smart about it. You can't just say, "Oh, that's the new shiny penny." You know, just like DEI, this is the new shiny penny. I need to get that penny. Um, how am I going to use it? How am I going to validate it? Is this really working? Are we getting good candidates? Are we getting diverse candidates? Why am I getting all young people and I'm not getting older people? Why am I getting all you know, whatever the case may be looking at those things. So it doesn't surprise me, surprise me. They came out with it that quickly.
1: Well, this, this EEO chair, EEOC chair talks about AI a lot and is, is, uh, seems, uh, really focused and active on, you know, disparate impact issues. And it talks about, and so I think, I think, I think the, the, the commission is being responsive to, and if uh, you know our friend Rodney Klein, who's now retired from the, uh, EEOC and, and is uh, doing EEO training, uh, I mean, he's being a lot more open about his experiences at EEOC and how reactive uh, so much of their initiatives were to just one commissioner or one chair's pet, pet projects. And so I think that's probably what drove it to jump out there so quickly.
0: Well, not only that, the EEOC during the Trump years was really investing in technology. So they have a lot of technology resources on staff now. So I'm sure it's more front and center. When they weren't doing a lot of enforcement, they were doing a lot of upgrades to their technology. So they've got more technology people on staff. So I'm sure it's front and center.
1: And this week, there was also stories uh, about using not just AI and employee selection, but also in employee monitoring. So we've got all these remote employees and we're trying to figure out, okay, are they working or not? So we're monitoring keystrokes and things like that. But Hey, you know, Jane was away, you know, four times, you know, we get, we have one 15 minute scheduled break in the day or whatever. And Jane was gone. Didn't do any keystrokes for four, four times for, you know, some period of time, each time. And, and, uh again, the EEOC chair was out there talking about it and sa- saying, you know, if this was in the workplace, you would happen to know that Jane was, you know, was a breastfeeding mother who needed to uh, go do whatever that's called and um, you know, express, Breastfeed. that's the word, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, But you know, remote, you don't know that. So just taking automatic action against Jane could create a uh, you know a violation there.
0: Yeah, and that whole work from home, I mean, the work from home going back to the workplace, I think that's really causing so much distress right now um, in the workplace. I see that as almost, it's just an interesting issue, right? It's so interesting because we trusted you to do this when it was in our best interest. Right. And now we want you back. You know, we want you back. And people are questioning, why do you want me back? And then you look at some of the productivity um, statistics that have come out. that As a nation, our productivity has dipped. Is that related? Uh, I don't know. So, yeah, the whole AI thing and monitoring employees, that I would never want to work somewhere where somebody didn't trust me. right. To do my job. Well, I mean, I think,
1: you know, on episode number two, back in August of 2021, (laughs) you and I talked about how the pandemic had exposed the good and the bad managers. And, and I, you know, I'd said when we first went remote that the organizations that managed, you know, by, you know, KPIs and performance and had good measures of quality and and productivity, they were going to be okay. But the ma- organizations that managed by looking over people's shoulders, what are you working on, and and walking, you know, manage that whole management by walking around, which is some value to having access to your employees and know what's going on and all of that. But if that's your primary management tool, you're gonna you're screwed when you go remote. It probably wasn't great for your management style when you were in person either. I mean, nobody likes having, <laughs> right. having their boss look over their shoulder and asking them those questions. But you know, I think this whole remote thing, this whole, you know, we've seen things where people have their, you know, their camera takes a picture every, you know, five minutes of them sitting at their desk. I mean, and and maybe does a screenshot of whatever they're looking at at that time. If you've got to do that, you've got some bigger issues that you need to address than that one employee who's, who's, you know, whether it's, you know, doing whatever, uh, you know, that, that may, that may get you in trouble for even trying to, to address it. But again, if you've got an organization where people can communicate and, and if, 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 you know, uh, the chances are highly unlikely, but if I were a young mother, uh, and I had to express and come and, and share something with, uh, you know, my boss that, Hey, I got to go, uh, do this on, you know, a few times a day. If you had the real, you know, if you have a relationship, you have that openness in your organization where you can do that, then you're, you're, then you're fine. If it's, if you're, if you're afraid that you're going to be penalized because of it, then then that's how employers get into this trouble because they don't have this, you know, they don't have an open communication with their, their employees. Agree. And last but not least, just real quick, uh, there was a CNBC article about uh, American CEOs are failing their workers right now. We're in a crisis of trust, which kind of ties in with what we were just talking about. And we're going to have links to all these stories, but... Uh, do you think it's a, a, the trust has changed or do you think the employee's expectations have changed uh, or, or, I mean, are companies less trustworthy or what's your take on that?
0: Well, my take on that is I do think the whole being remote, you know, and now CEOs wanting people back and the reasons that they want them, I think that's causing distress. I also think the whole economic, you know, how much my CEO is making, you know, so all that transparency about, you know, the CEO makes 15 times more than I do. So I think there's more disparity in compensation that leads to that whole, I don't know, it's almost like the, and then I'm talking about really big companies, I guess, mostly, I think that they feel so untouchable in a way, right? Well,
1: And I think, most people trust or distrust their company not because of the CEO, it's because of their own leadership. Wow, yeah, and I that, mean, that's true. their experience with their own manager. Uh, and again, we hire people to do a certain kind of job, they excel at it, and then we make them a manager of people and assume that they could do that. It's a completely <laughs> different skill set. And I, I was talking to a client not long ago, and, and the person they wanted to put into a supervision role wasn't their strongest performer in that work unit, but was the one who, you know, who could motivate and lead people. And they were really nervous about how it was going to be taken by other, you know, by the, the person who really wanted the job, but how it was horrible with people. And I said, well, you got two choices. Either you train that person, you should probably train that person to be better with people either way uh, and give them that skill set. Um, but if this is the best leader you've got, They don't have to be the best technical person. And there's, those are two different skill sets, but we don't, we don't do that too often. And so, and I've just got to put in that CEO pay doesn't bother me. Like it does so many other people. There are precious few people who could be a successful CEO for Ford motor company. And there are a lot of people who could be accountants for Ford motor company. And so there's a, or turn a a screwdriver for Ford or whatever. and, you, you, the market drives what those people are paid. And so, and if a board said, we're not going to pay this person that, then they're taking the risk that if they really think this is the person best qualified to lead the organization through a certain period, that they're not going to get them. And, and so I don't think it's greed. I don't think it's it's just welcome to market forces. Now does that mean that we shouldn't give our employees livable wages and opportunities for growth and all that. No, we, we definitely, uh, we should, that's good business as well.
0: Yeah. But I think the average person sees that Mm -hmm. and they don't understand all that. Oh, I I agree. Oh, I thought it's not explained. And they, you know, they see, you know, American airlines, I'm just using as example, our, our customers are upset with us. We've got labor problems and, and you're getting X, you know. Just and I don't even know if that's true about American Airlines. I'm just saying, for example, right, no, yeah. I think the average person and say uh, maybe say
1: Braniff is a safe one. Yeah.
0: Braniff, there you go. Yeah, because Americans in our backyard, yeah. we love American. We love American Airlines. American. <laughs> Keep paying taxes do. I to Fort all Worth,
1: the time. please, American. <laughs> <Yeah.
0: laughs> but um, yeah, so I don't, I don't know.
1: Well, we have exhausted all our time today, and probably our listeners too. Aww. Thanks for joining me again, Terry.
0: Thank you, Mike.
1: And thank you for listening. You can comment on this episode. Tell me where I'm right. I don't want to hear where I'm wrong. Or search our previous episodes at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and you can reach him at robmakespods.com. And thank you to Imperatives Marketing Coordinator, Marianne Hernandez, who keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey, as always. Please don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.